McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Hamburglar, the time is yours. Bravo, bravo. He said, these are McDonald's best burgers ever. And then, can I keep them? And then he just grabbed them and ran away. Brabble. Now get a Big Mac or double cheeseburger for two bucks in the app. Limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid one time per day. Must opt into rewards. Visit McD app for details. Available at most restaurants in this area. Comparison of McDonald's classic burgers to prior burgers. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading is by Martin Clifton. The Vicar of Wakefield, a tale supposed to be written by himself, by Oliver Goldsmith. Advertisement. There are an hundred faults in this thing, and an hundred things might be said to prove them beauties. But it is needless. A book may be amusing with numerous errors, or it may be very dull without a single absurdity. The hero of this piece unites in himself the three greatest characters upon earth. He is a priest, an husbandman, and the father of a family. He is drawn as ready to teach and ready to obey, as simple in affluence and majestic in adversity. In this age of opulence and refinement, who can such a character please? Such as are fond of high life will turn with disdain from the simplicity of his country fireside. Such as mistake ribaldry for humour will find no wit in his harmless conversation. And such as have been taught to deride religion will laugh at one whose chief stores of comfort are drawn from futurity. Chapter 1. The description of the family of Wakefield, in which a kindred likeness prevails as well of minds as of persons. I was ever of opinion that the honest man who married and brought up a large family did more service than he who continued single, and only talked of population. From this motive I had scarce taken orders a year before I began to think seriously of matrimony, and chose my wife as she did her wedding-gown, not for a fine glossy surface, but such qualities as would wear well. To do her justice she was a good-natured, notable woman, and, as for breeding, there were few country ladies who could show more. She could read any English book without much spelling, but for pickling, preserving, and cookery none could excel her. She prided herself also upon being an excellent contriver in housekeeping, though I could never find that we grew richer with all her contrivances. However, we loved each other tenderly, and our fondness increased as we grew old. There was, in fact, nothing that could make us angry with the world or each other. We had an elegant house, situated in a fine country, and a good neighbourhood. The year was spent in moral and rural amusements, in visiting our rich neighbours and relieving such as were poor. We had no revolutions to fear, nor fatigues to undergo. 
All our adventures were by the fireside, and all our migrations from the blue bed to the brown. As we lived near the road, we often had the traveller or stranger visit us to taste our gooseberry wine, for which we had great reputation. And I profess with the veracity of an historian that I never knew one of them find fault with it. Our cousins, too, even to the fortieth remove, all remembered their affinity without any help from the herald's office, and came very frequently to see us. Some of them did us no great honour by these claims of kindred, and we had the blind, the maimed, and the halt amongst the number. However, my wife always insisted that as they were the same flesh and blood, they should sit with us at the same table. So that if we had not very rich, we generally had very happy friends about us. For this remark will hold good through life. The poorer the guest, the better pleased he ever is with being treated. And as some men gaze with admiration at the colours of a tulip or the wing of a butterfly, so I was by nature an admirer of happy human faces. However, when any one of our relations was found to be a person of very bad character, a troublesome guest, or one we desired to get rid of, upon his leaving my house I took care to lend him a riding coat, or a pair of boots, or sometimes an horse of small value, and I always had the satisfaction of finding he never came back to return them. By this the house was cleared of such as we did not like, but never was the family of Wakefield known to turn the traveller or the poor dependent out of doors. Thus we lived several years in a state of much happiness, not but that we sometimes had those little rubs which Providence sends to enhance the value of its favours. My orchard was often robbed by schoolboys, and my wife's custards plundered by the cats or the children. The squire would sometimes fall asleep in the most pathetic parts of my sermon, or his lady return my wife's civilities at church with a mutilated curtsy but we soon got over the uneasiness caused by such accidents, and usually in three or four days began to wonder how they vexed us. My children, the offspring of temperance, as they were educated without softness, so they were at once well-formed and healthy. My sons hardy and active, my daughters beautiful and blooming. When I stood in the midst of the little circle which promised to be the supports of my declining age, I could not avoid repeating the famous story of Count Abensberg, who, in Henry II's progress through Germany, while other courtiers came with their treasures, brought his thirty-two children, and presented them to his sovereign as the most valuable offering he had to bestow. In this manner, though I had but six, I considered them as a very valuable present made to my country, and consequently looked upon it as my debtor. Our eldest son was named George, after his uncle, who left us ten thousand pounds. Our second child, a girl, I intended to call after her aunt Grissel, but my wife, who during her pregnancy had been reading romances, insisted upon her being called Olivia. In less than another year we had another daughter, and now I was determined that Grissel should be her name. But a rich relation, taking a fancy to stand godmother, the girl was, by her directions, called Sophia, so that we had two romantic names in the family, but I solemnly protest I had no hand in it. Moses was our next, and after an interval of twelve years we had two sons more. It would be fruitless to deny my exultation when I saw my little ones about me, 
but the vanity and the satisfaction of my wife were even greater than mine, when our visitors would say, Well, upon my word, Mrs. Primrose, you have the finest children in the whole country. Aye, neighbour, she would answer, They are as heaven made them, handsome enough, if they be good enough, for handsome is that handsome does. And then she would bid the girls hold up their heads, who, to conceal nothing, were certainly very handsome. Mere outside is so very trifling a circumstance with me that I should scarce have remembered to mention it, had it not been a general topic of conversation in the country. Olivia, now about eighteen, had that luxuriancy of beauty with which painters generally draw Hebe, open, sprightly, and commanding. Sophia's features were not so striking at first, but often did more certain execution, for they were soft, modest, and alluring the one vanquished by a single blow, the other by efforts successfully repeated. The temper of a woman is generally formed from the turn of her features, at least it was so with my daughters. Olivia wished for many lovers, Sophia to secure one. Olivia was often affected from too great a desire to please, Sophia even repressed excellence from her fears to offend. The one entertained me with her vivacity when I was gay, the other with her sense when I was serious. But these qualities were never carried to excess in either, and I have often seen them exchange characters for a whole day together. A suit of mourning has transformed my coquette into a prude, and a new set of ribbons has given her younger sister more than natural vivacity. My eldest son George was bred at Oxford, as I intended him for one of the learned professions. My second boy Moses, whom I designed for business, received a sort of a miscellaneous education at home. But it is needless to attempt describing the particular characters of young people that had seen but very little of the world. In short, a family likeness prevailed through all, and, properly speaking, they had but one character, that of being equally generous, credulous, simple, and inoffensive. End of chapter. The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 2 Family Misfortunes The loss of fortune only serves to increase the pride of the worthy. The temporal concerns of our family were chiefly committed to my wife's management. As to the spiritual, I took them entirely under my own direction. The profits of my living, which amounted to but £35 a year, I made over to the orphans and widows of the clergy of our diocese, for, having a sufficient fortune of my own, I was careless of temporalities, and felt a secret pleasure in doing my duty without reward. I also set a resolution of keeping no curate, and of being acquainted with every man in the parish, exhorting the married men to temperance, and the bachelors to matrimony, so that in a few years it was a common saying that there were three strange wants at Wakefield, a parson wanting pride, young men wanting wives, and alehouses wanting customers. Matrimony was always one of my favourite topics, and I wrote several sermons to prove its happiness. But there was a peculiar tenet which I made a point of supporting, for I maintained with Whiston that it was unlawful for a priest of the Church of England, after the death of his first wife, to take a second, or, to express it in one word, I valued myself upon being a strict monogamist. I was early initiated into this important dispute 
on which so many laborious volumes have been written. I published some tracts upon the subject myself, which, as they never sold, I have the consolation of thinking, are read only by the happy few. Some of my friends call this my weak side, but, alas, they had not, like me, made it the subject of long contemplation. The more I reflected upon it, the more important it appeared. I even went a step beyond Whiston in displaying my principles. As he had engraven upon his wife's tomb that she was the only wife of William Whiston, so I wrote a similar epitaph for my wife, though still living, in which I extolled her prudence, economy, and obedience till death. And, having got it copied fair with an elegant frame, it was placed over the chimney-piece, where it answered several very useful purposes. It admonished my wife of her duty to me, and my fidelity to her, it inspired her with a passion for fame, and constantly put her in mind of her end. It was thus, perhaps, from hearing marriage so often recommended, that my eldest son, just upon leaving college, fixed his affections upon the daughter of a neighbouring clergyman, who was a dignitary in the church and in circumstances to give her a large fortune. But fortune was her smallest accomplishment. Miss Arabella Wilmot was allowed by all, except my two daughters, to be completely pretty. Her youth, health, and innocence were still heightened by a complexion so transparent, and such an happy sensibility of look, as even age could not gaze on with indifference. As Mr. Wilmot knew that I could make a very handsome settlement on my son, he was not averse to the match. So both families lived together in all that harmony which generally precedes an expected alliance. Being convinced by experience that the days of courtship are the most happy of our lives, I was willing enough to lengthen the period. And the various amusements which the young couple every day shared in each other's company seemed to increase their passion. We were generally awakened in the morning by music, and on fine days rode a-hunting. The hours between breakfast and dinner the ladies devoted to dress and study. They usually read a page, and then gazed at themselves in the glass, which even philosophers might own often presented the page of greatest beauty. At dinner my wife took the lead, for, as she always insisted upon carving everything herself, it being her mother's way, she gave us upon these occasions the history of every dish. When we had dined, to prevent the ladies leaving us, I generally ordered the table to be removed, and sometimes, with the music-master's assistance, the girls would give us a very agreeable concert. Walking out, drinking tea, country dances, and forfeits shortened the rest of the day without the assistance of cards, as I hated all manner of gaming except backgammon, at which my old friend and I sometimes took a tuppenny hit. Nor can I here pass over an ominous circumstance that happened the last time we played together. I only wanted to fling a quatre, and yet I threw deuce-ace five times running. Some months were elapsed in this manner, till, at last, it was thought convenient to fix a day for the nuptials of the young couple, who seemed earnestly to desire it. During the preparations for the wedding, I need not describe the busy importance of my wife, nor the sly looks of my daughters. In fact, my attention was fixed on another object, the completing a tract which I intended shortly to publish, in defence of my favourite principle. As I looked upon this as a masterpiece, both for argument and style, I could not, in the pride of my heart, avoid showing it to my old friend, Mr. Wilmot, 
as I made no doubt of receiving his approbation. But not till too late I discovered that he was most violently attached to the contrary opinion, and with good reason, for he was at that time actually courting a fourth wife. This, as may be expected, produced a dispute attended with some acrimony, which threatened to interrupt our intended alliance. But on the day before that appointed for the ceremony, we agreed to discuss the subject at large. It was managed with proper spirit on both sides. He asserted that I was heterodox. I retorted the charge. He replied, and I rejoined. In the main theme, while the controversy was hottest, I was called out by one of my relations, who, with a face of concern, advised me to give up the dispute, at least till my son's wedding was over. How, cried I, relinquish the cause of truth, and let him be a husband, already driven to the very verge of absurdity? You might as well advise me to give up my fortune as my argument. Your fortune, returned my friend, I am now sorry to inform you, is almost nothing. The merchant in town, in whose hand your money was lodged, has gone off, to avoid a statute of bankruptcy, and is thought not to have left a shilling in the pound. I was unwilling to shock you or the family with the account till after the wedding, but now it may serve to moderate your warmth in the argument, for, I suppose, your own prudence will enforce the necessity of dissembling, at least till your son has the young lady's fortune secure. Well, returned I, if what you tell me be true, and if I am to be a beggar, it shall never make me a rascal or induce me to disavow my principles. I'll go this moment and inform the company of my circumstances. And, as for the argument, I even here retract my former concessions in the old gentleman's favour, nor will I allow him, now, to be an husband in any sense of the expression. It would be endless to describe the different sensations of both families when I divulged the news of our misfortune, but what others felt was slight to what the lovers appeared to endure. Mr. Wilmot, who seemed before sufficiently inclined to break off the match, was by this blow soon determined. One virtue he had in perfection, which was prudence, too often the only one that is left us at seventy-two. End of chapter The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 3 A Migration the fortunate circumstances of our lives are generally found at last to be of our own procuring. The only hope of our family now was that the report of our misfortunes might be malicious or premature, but a letter from my agent in town soon came with a confirmation of every particular. The loss of fortune to myself alone would have been trifling. The only uneasiness I felt was for my family, who were to be humble without an education to render them callous to contempt. Near a fortnight had passed before I attempted to restrain their affliction, for premature consolation is but the remembrance of sorrow. During this interval my thoughts were employed on some future means of supporting them, and at last a small cure of fifteen pounds a year was offered me in a distant neighbourhood, where I could still enjoy my principles without molestation. With this proposal I joyfully closed, having determined to increase my salary by managing a little farm. Having taken this resolution, my next care was to get together the wrecks of my fortune, and, all debts collected and paid, 
Out of fourteen thousand pounds we had but four hundred remaining. My chief attention, therefore, was now to bring down the pride of my family to their circumstances, for I well knew that aspiring beggary is a wretchedness itself. You cannot be ignorant, my children, I cried, that no prudence of ours could have prevented our late misfortune. But prudence may do much in disappointing its effects. We are now poor, my fondlings, and wisdom bids us conform to our humble situation. Let us then, without repining, give up those splendours with which numbers are wretched, and seek in humbler circumstances that peace with which all may be happy. The poor live pleasantly without our help. Why, then, should not we learn to live without theirs? No, my children, let us from this moment give up all pretensions to gentility. We have still enough left for happiness if we are wise, and let us draw upon content for the deficiencies of fortune. As my eldest son was bred a scholar, I determined to send him to town where his abilities might contribute to our support and his own. The separation of friends and families is, perhaps, one of the most distressful circumstances attendant on penury. The day soon arrived on which we were to disperse for the first time. My son, after taking leave of his mother and the rest, who mingled their tears with their kisses, came to ask a blessing from me. This I gave him from my heart, and which, added to five guineas, was all the patrimony I had to bestow. "'You are going, my boy,' cried I, "'to London on foot, in the manor Hooker. Your greatest ancestor travelled before you. Take from me the same horse that was given him by the good Bishop Jewell, this staff, and take this book too. It will be your comfort on the way. These two lines in it are worth a million. I have been young, and now am old. Yet never saw I the righteous man forsaken, or his seed begging their bread. Let this be your consolation as you travel on. Go, my boy, whatever be thy fortune, let me see thee once a year. Still keep a good heart, and farewell. As he was possessed of integrity and honour, I was under no apprehension from throwing him naked into the amphitheatre of life, for I knew he would act a good part whether vanquished or victorious. His departure only prepared the way for our own, which arrived a few days afterwards. The leaving a neighbourhood in which we had enjoyed so many hours of tranquillity was not without a tear, which scarce fortitude itself could suppress. Besides, a journey of seventy miles to a family that had hitherto never been above ten from home filled us with apprehension, and the cries of the poor who followed us for some miles contributed to increase it. The first day's journey brought us in safety within thirty miles of our future retreat, and we put up for the night at an obscure inn in a village by the way. When we were shown a room I desired the landlord, in my usual way, to let us have his company, with which he complied, as what he drank would increase the bill next morning. He knew, however, the whole neighbourhood to which I was removing, particularly Squire Thornhill, who was to be my landlord, and who lived within a few miles of the place. This gentleman he described as one who desired to know little more of the world than its pleasures, being particularly remarkable for his attachment to the fair sex. He observed that no virtue was able to resist his arts of assiduity, and that scarce a farmer's daughter within ten miles round but what had found him successful and faithless. 
though this account gave me some pain, it had a very different effect upon my daughters, whose features seemed to brighten with the expectation of an approaching triumph. Nor was my wife less pleased and confident of their allurements and virtue. While our thoughts were thus employed, the hostess entered the room to inform her husband that the strange gentleman who had been two days in the house wanted money, and could not satisfy them for his reckoning. "'Want money?' replied the host. "'That must be impossible, for it was no later than yesterday he paid three guineas to our beadle to spare an old broken soldier that was to be whipped through the town for dog-stealing.' The hostess, however, still persisting in her first assertion, he was preparing to leave the room, swearing that he would be satisfied one way or another, when I begged the landlord would introduce me to a stranger of so much charity as he described. With this he complied, showing in a gentleman who seemed to be about thirty, dressed in clothes that once were laced. His person was well formed, and his face marked with the lines of thinking. He had something short and dry in his address, and seemed not to understand ceremony or to despise it. Upon the landlord's leaving the room, I could not avoid expressing my concern to the stranger at seeing a gentleman in such circumstances, and offered him my purse to satisfy the present demand. "'I take it with all my heart, sir,' replied he, "'and am glad that a late oversight in giving what money I had about me has shown me that there are still some men like you.' I must, however, previously entreat being informed of the name and residence of my benefactor, in order to repay him as soon as possible. In this I satisfied him fully, not only mentioning my name and late misfortunes, but the place to which I was going to remove. This, cried he, happened still more luckily than I hoped for, as I am going the same way myself, having been detained here two days by the floods, which I hope by to-morrow will be found passable. I testified the pleasure I should have in his company, and, my wife and daughters joining in entreaty, he was prevailed upon to stay supper. The stranger's conversation, which was at once pleasing and instructive, induced me to wish for a continuance of it. But it was now high time to retire and take refreshment against the fatigues of the following day. The next morning we all set forward together, my family on horseback, while Mr. Burchell, our new companion, walked along the footpath by the roadside, observing with a smile that as we were ill-mounted he would be too generous to attempt leaving us behind. As the floods were not yet subsided, we were obliged to hire a guide who trotted on before, Mr. Burchell and I bringing up the rear. We lightened the fatigues of the road with philosophical disputes, which he seemed to understand perfectly. But what surprised me most was that, though he was a money-borrower, he defended his opinions with as much obstinacy as if he had been my patron. He now and then also informed me to whom the different seats belonged that lay in our view as we travelled the road. "'That,' cried he, pointing to a very magnificent house which stood at some distance, "'belongs to Mr. Thornhill, a young gentleman who enjoys a large fortune, though entirely dependent on the will of his uncle, Sir William Thornhill, a gentleman, who, content with a little himself, permits his nephew to enjoy the rest, and chiefly resides in town. "'What?' cried I. "'Is my young landlord then the nephew of a man whose virtues, generosity, and singularities are so universally known?' 
I have heard Sir William Thornhill represented as one of the most generous yet whimsical men in the kingdom, a man of consummate benevolence. Something, perhaps too much so, replied Mr. Birchall, at least he carried benevolence to an excess when young, for his passions were then strong, and as they all were upon the side of virtue, they led it up to a romantic extreme. He early began to aim at the qualifications of the soldier and the scholar, was soon distinguished in the army, and had some reputation among men of learning. Adulation ever follows the ambitious, for such alone receive the most pleasure from flattery. He was surrounded with crowds who showed him only one side of their character, so that he began to lose a regard for private interest in universal sympathy. He loved all mankind, for fortune prevented him from knowing that, that there were rascals. Physicians tell us of a disorder in which the whole body is so exquisitely sensible that the slightest touch gives pain. What some have thus suffered in their persons, this gentleman felt in his mind. The slightest distress, whether real or fictitious, touched him to the quick, and his soul laboured under a sickly sensibility of the miseries of others. Thus disposed to relieve, it would be easily conjectured, he found numbers disposed to solicit. His profusions began to impair his fortune, but not his good nature. That, indeed, was seen to increase as the other seemed to decay. He grew improvident as he grew poor. And though he talked like a man of sense, his actions were those of a fool. Still, however, being surrounded with importunity, and no longer able to satisfy every request that was made of him, instead of money he gave promises. They were all he had to bestow, and he had not resolution enough to give any man pain by denial. By this he drew around him crowds of dependents, whom he was sure to disappoint, yet wished to relieve. These hung upon him for a time, and left him with merited reproaches and contempt. But in proportion as he became contemptible to others, he became despicable to himself. His mind had leaned upon their adulation, and that support taken away, he could find no pleasure in the applause of his heart, which he had never learnt to reverence. The world now began to wear a different aspect. The flattery of his friends began to dwindle into simple approbation. Approbation soon took the more friendly form of advice, and advice, when rejected, produced their reproaches. He now, therefore, found that such friends as benefits had gathered around him were little estimable. He now found that a man's own heart must be ever given to gain that of another. I now found that, that I forgot what I was going to observe. In short, sir, he resolved to respect himself and laid down a plan of restoring his failing fortune. For this purpose, in his own whimsical manner, he travelled through Europe on foot, and now, though he has scarce attained the age of thirty, his circumstances are more affluent than ever. At present his bounties are more rational and moderate than before, but still he preserves the character of an humorist, and finds most pleasure in eccentric virtues. My attention was so much taken up by Mr. Birchall's account that I scarce looked forward as we went along, till we were alarmed by the cries of my family. When turning I perceived my youngest daughter in the midst of a rapid stream, thrown from her horse and struggling with the torrent. She had sunk twice, nor was it in my power to disengage myself in time to bring her relief. My sensations were even too violent to permit my attempting her rescue. 
she must have certainly perished had not my companion, perceiving her danger, instantly plunged into her relief, and with some difficulty brought her in safety to the opposite shore. By taking the current a little further up, the rest of the family got safely over, where we had an opportunity of joining our acknowledgments to hers. Her gratitude may be more readily imagined than described. She thanked her deliverer more with looks than words, and continued to lean upon his arm as if still willing to receive assistance. My wife also hoped one day to have the pleasures of returning his kindness at her own house. Thus, after we were refreshed at the next inn, and had dined together, as Mr. Bircher was going to a different part of the country, he took leave, and we pursued our journey. My wife observing as he went that she liked him extremely, and protesting that if he had birth and fortune to entitle him to match into such a family as ours, she knew no man she would sooner fix upon. I could not but smile to hear her talk in this lofty strain, but I was never much displeased with those harmless delusions that tend to make us more happy. End of chapter The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 4. A proof that even the humblest fortune may grant happiness, which depends not on circumstance, but constitution. The place of our retreat was in a little neighbourhood consisting of farmers who tilled their own grounds, and were equal strangers to opulence and poverty. As they had almost all the conveniences of life within themselves, they seldom visited towns or cities in search of superfluity. Remote from the polite, they still retained the primeval simplicity of manners, and, frugal by habit, they scarce knew that temperance was a virtue. They wrought with cheerfulness on days of labour, but observed festivals as intervals of idleness and pleasure. They kept up the Christmas carol, sent true love-knots on Valentine morning, eat pancakes on Shrove-tide, showed their wit on the 1st of April, and religiously cracked nuts on Michaelmas Eve. Being apprised of our approach, the whole neighbourhood came out to meet their minister, dressed in their finest clothes, and preceded by a pipe and table. A feast also was provided for our reception, at which we sat cheerfully down and what the conversation wanted in wit was made up in laughter. Our little habitation was situated at the foot of a sloping hill, sheltered with a beautiful underwood behind, and a prattling river before. On one side a meadow, on the other a green. My farm consisted of about twenty acres of excellent land, having given an hundred pound for my predecessor's goodwill. Nothing could exceed the neatness of my little enclosures the elms and hedgerows appearing with inexpressible beauty. My house consisted of but one story, and was covered with thatch, which gave it an air of great snugness. The walls on the inside were nicely whitewashed, and my daughters undertook to adorn them with pictures of their own designing. Though the same room served us for parlour and kitchen, that only made it the warmer. Besides, as it was kept with the utmost neatness, the dishes, plates, and coppers being well scoured, and all disposed in bright rows on the shelves, the eye was agreeably relieved, and did not want richer furniture. There were three other apartments, one for my wife and me, 
another for our two daughters within our own, and the third with two beds for the rest of the children. The little republic to which I gave laws was regulated in the following manner. By sunrise we all assembled in our common apartment, the fire being previously kindled by the servant. After we had saluted each other with proper ceremony, for I always thought fit to keep up some mechanical forms of good breeding, without which freedom ever destroys friendship, we all bent in gratitude to that being who gave us another day. This duty being performed, my son and I went to pursue our usual industry abroad, while my wife and daughters employed themselves in providing breakfast, which was always ready at a certain time. I allowed half an hour for this meal, and an hour for dinner, which time was taken up in innocent mirth between my wife and daughters, and in philosophical arguments between my son and me. As we rose with the sun, so we never pursued our labours after it was gone down, but returned home to the expecting family, where smiling looks, a treat hearth, and pleasant fire were prepared for our reception. Nor were we without guests, sometimes Farmer Flanborough, our talkative neighbour, and often the blind piper would pay us a visit and taste our gooseberry wine, for the making of which we had lost neither the receipt nor the reputation. These harmless people had several ways of being good company, while one played the other would sing some soothing ballad. Johnny Armstrong's last good night, or the cruelty of Barbara Allen. The night was concluded in the manner we began in the morning. My youngest boys being appointed to read the lessons of the day, and he that read loudest, distinctest and best, was to have an halfpenny on Sunday to put in the poor's box. When Sunday came, it was indeed a day of finery, which all my sumptuary edicts could not restrain. How well soever I fancied my lectures against pride had conquered the vanity of my daughters, yet I still found them secretly attached to all their former finery. They still loved laces, ribbons, bugles, and catgut. My wife herself retained a passion for her crimson pagesy, because I formerly happened to say it became her. The first Sunday in particular their behaviour served to mortify me. I had desired my girls the preceding night to be dressed early the next day, for I always loved to be at church a good while before the rest of the congregation. They punctually obeyed my directions, but when we were to assemble in the morning at breakfast, down came my wife and daughters dressed out in all their former splendour. Their hair plastered up with pomatum, their faces patched to taste, their trains bundled up into a heap behind, and rustling at every motion. I could not help smiling at their vanity, particularly that of my wife, from whom I expected more discretion. In this exigence, therefore, my only recourse was to order my son, with an important air, to call our coach. The girls were amazed at the command, but I repeated it with more solemnity than before. "'Surely, my dear, you jest,' cried my wife. "'We can walk it perfectly well. "'We want no coach to carry us now.' "'You mistake, child,' returned I. "'We do want a coach, for if we walk to church in this trim, "'the very children in the parish will hoot after us.' "'Indeed,' replied my wife. "'I always imagined that my Charles was fond of seeing his children "'neat and handsome about him.' "'You may be as neat as you please,' interrupted I, "'and I shall love you the better for it.' But all this is not neatness, but frippery. These rufflings and pinkings and patchings will only make us hated by all the wives of all our neighbours. 
No, my children, continued I more gravely, those gowns may be altered into something of a plainer cut, for finery is very unbecoming in us who want the means of decency. I do not know whether such flouncing and shredding is becoming even in the rich, if we consider, upon a moderate calculation, that the nakedness of the indigent world may be clothed from the trimmings of the vein. This remonstrance had the proper effect. They went with great composure that very instant to change their dress. And the next day I had the satisfaction of finding my daughters, at their own request, employed in cutting up their trains into Sunday waistcoats for Dick and Bill, the two little ones, and, what was still more satisfactory, the gowns seemed improved by this curtailing. End of chapter The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 5 A new and great acquaintance introduced. What we place most hopes upon generally proves most fatal. At a small distance from the house my predecessor had made a seat overshaded by an hedge of hawthorn and honeysuckle. Here, when the weather was fine and our labour soon finished, we usually sat together to enjoy an extensive landscape in the calm of the evening. Here, too, we drank tea, which now was become an occasional banquet. And, as we had it but seldom, it diffused a new joy, the preparations for it being made with no small share of bustle and ceremony. On these occasions our two little ones always read to us, and they were regularly served after we had done. Sometimes, to give a variety to our amusements, the girls sung to the guitar, and while they thus formed a little concert, my wife and I would stroll down the sloping field that was embellished with bluebells and centaury, talk of our children with rapture, and enjoy the breeze that wafted both health and harmony. In this manner we began to find that every situation in life might bring its own peculiar pleasures. Every morning waked us to a repetition of toil, but the evening repaid it with vacant hilarity. It was about the beginning of autumn on a holiday, for I kept such as intervals of relaxation from labour, that I had drawn out my family to our usual place of amusement, and our young musicians began their usual concert. As we were thus engaged, we saw a stag bound nimbly by, within about twenty paces of where we were sitting, and by its panting it seemed pressed by the hunters. We had not much time to reflect upon the poor animal's distress when we perceived the dogs and horsemen come sweeping along at some distance behind, and making the very path it had taken. I was instantly for returning in with my family, but either curiosity or surprise or some hidden motive held my wife and daughters to their seats. The huntsman who rode foremost passed us with great swiftness, followed by four or five persons more, who seemed in equal haste. At last a young gentleman of a more genteel appearance than the rest came forward, and, for a while regarding us, instead of pursuing the chase, stopped short, and, giving his horse to a servant who attended, approached us with a careless superior air. He seemed to want no introduction, but was going to salute my daughters as one certain of a kind reception. But they had early learnt the lesson of looking presumption out of countenance, upon which he let us know that his name was Thornhill, and that he was owner of the estate that lay for some extent around us. He again, therefore, 
offered to salute the female part of the family, and such was the power of fortune and fine clothes that he found no second repulse. As his address, though confident, was easy, we soon became more familiar. And, perceiving musical instruments lying near, he begged to be favoured with a song. As I did not approve of such disproportioned acquaintances, I winked upon my daughters in order to prevent their compliance. But my hint was counteracted by one from their mother, so that with a cheerful air they gave us a favourite song of Dryden's. Mr. Thornhill seemed highly delighted with their performance and choice, and then took up the guitar himself. He played but very indifferently. However, my eldest daughter repaid his former applause with interest, and assured him that his tones were louder than even those of her master. At this compliment he bowed, which she returned with a curtsy. He praised her taste, and she commended his understanding. An age could not have made them better acquainted. While the fond mother, too, equally happy, insisted upon her landlord stepping in and tasting a glass of her gooseberry. The whole family seemed earnest to please him. My girls attempted to entertain him with topics they thought most modern, while Moses, on the contrary, gave him a question or two from the ancients, for which he had the satisfaction of being laughed at. My little ones were no less busy, and fondly stuck close to the stranger. All my endeavours could scarce keep their dirty fingers from handling and tarnishing the lace on his clothes, and lifting up the flaps of his pocket-holes to see what was there. At the approach of the evening he took leave, but not till he had requested permission to renew his visit, which, as he was our landlord, we most readily agreed to. As soon as he was gone, my wife called a council on the conduct of the day. She was of opinion that it was a most fortunate hit, for that she had known even stranger things at last brought to bear. She hoped again to see the day in which we might hold up our heads with the best of them, and, concluded, she protested, she could see no reason why the two Miss Wrinklers should marry great fortunes, and her children get none. As this last argument was directed to me, I protested I could see no reason for it neither nor why Mr. Simpkins got the ten-thousand-pound prize in the lottery, and we sat down with a blank. "'I protest, Charles,' cried my wife. "'This is the way you always damp my girls and me when we're in spirits. Tell me, Sophie, my dear, what do you think of our new visitor? Don't you think he seemed to be good-natured?' "'Immensely so, indeed, mamma replied she. "'I think he has a great deal to say upon everything, and is never at a loss.' and the more trifling the subject, the more he has to say. "'Yes,' cried Olivia, "'he is well enough for a man, but for my part I don't much like him. He is so extremely impudent and familiar. But on the guitar he is shocking.' These last two speeches I interpreted by contraries. I found by this that Sophia internally despised as much as Olivia secretly admired him. "'Whatever may be your opinions of him, my children,' cried I, "'to confess a truth he has not.' prepossessed me in his favour. Disproportioned friendships ever terminate in disgust, and I thought, notwithstanding all his ease, that he seemed perfectly sensible of the distance between us. Let us keep to companions of our own rank. There is no character more contemptible than a man that is a fortune-hunter, and I can see no reason why fortune-hunting women should not be contemptible too. 
Thus, at best, we shall be contemptible if his views be honourable. But if they be otherwise, I should shudder but to think of that. It is true I have no apprehensions from the conduct of my children, but I think there are some from his character. I would have proceeded but for the interruption of a servant from the squire, who, with his compliments, sent us a side of venison, and a promise to dine with us some days after. This well-timed present pleaded more powerfully in his favour than anything I had to say could obviate. I therefore continued silent, satisfied with just having pointed out danger, and leaving it to their own discretion to avoid it. That virtue which requires to be ever guarded is scarce worth the sentinel. End of chapter The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 6 The Happiness of a Country Fireside As we carried on the former dispute with some degree of warmth, in order to accommodate matters it was universally agreed that we should have a part of the venison for supper, and the girls undertook the task with alacrity. "'I'm sorry,' cried I, "'that we have no neighbour or stranger to take a part in this good cheer. Feasts of this kind acquire a double relish from hospitality.' "'Bless me,' cried my wife, "'here comes our good friend Mr. Birchall, that saved our Sophia, and that run you down fairly in the argument.' "'Confute me an argument, child,' cried I. "'You mistake there, my dear. I believe there are but few that can do that.' I never dispute your abilities at making goose pie, and I beg you'll leave argument to me. As I spoke, poor Mr. Birchall entered the house, and was welcomed by the family, who shook him heartily by the hand, while little Dick officiously reached him a chair. I was pleased with the poor man's friendship for two reasons, because I knew that he wanted mine, and I knew him to be friendly as far as he was able. He was known in our neighbourhood by the character of the poor gentleman that would do no good when he was young, though he was not yet thirty. He would at intervals talk with great good sense, but in general he was fondest of the company of children, whom he used to call harmless little men. He was famous, I found, for singing them ballads and telling them stories, and seldom went out without something in his pockets for them, a piece of gingerbread or a halfpenny whistle. He generally came for a few days into our neighbourhood once a year, and lived upon the neighbour's hospitality. He sat down to supper among us, and my wife was not sparing of her gooseberry wine. The tale went round, he sung us old songs, and gave the children the story of the Buck of Beverland, with the history of patient Gristle, the adventures of Catskin, and then fair Rosamond's Bower. Our cock, which always crew at eleven, now told us it was time for repose. But an unforeseen difficulty started about lodging the stranger. All our beds were already taken up, and it was too late to send him to the next alehouse. In this dilemma, little Dick offered him his part of the bed, if his brother Moses would let him lie with him. And I, cried Bill, will give Mr. Birchall my part, if my sisters will take me to theirs. Well done, my good children, cried I. Hospitality is one of the first Christian duties. The beast retires to its shelter, and the bird flies to its nest. But helpless man can only find refuge from his fellow-creature. The greatest stranger in this world was he that came to save it. He never had an house, 
as if willing to see what hospitality was left remaining among us. "'Deborah, my dear,' cried I to my wife, "'give those boys a lump of sugar each, and let Dix be the largest, because he spoke first. In the morning early I called out my whole family to help at saving an aftergrowth of hay, and, our guest offering his assistance, he was accepted among the number. Our labours went on lightly, we turned the swath to the wind, I went foremost, and the rest followed in due succession. I could not avoid, however, observing the assiduity of Mr. Burchill in assisting my daughter Sophia in her part of the task. When he had finished his own, he would join in hers, and enter in a close conversation. But I had too good an opinion of Sophia's understanding, and was too well convinced of her ambition, to be under any uneasiness from a man of broken fortune. When we were finished for the day, Mr. Bircher was invited as on the night before, but he refused, as he was to lie that night at a neighbour's, to whose child he was carrying a whistle. When gone, our conversation at supper turned upon our late unfortunate guest. "'What a strong instance,' said I, "'is that poor man of the miseries attending a youth of levity and extravagance. He by no means wants sense, which only serves to aggravate his former folly.' Poor forlorn creature! Where are now the revellers, the flatterers, that he could once inspire and command? Gone, perhaps, to attend the bagno panda, grown rich by his extravagance. They once praised him, and now they applaud the panda. Their former raptures at his wit are now converted into sarcasms at his folly. He is poor, and perhaps deserves poverty, for he has neither the ambition to be independent, nor the skill to be useful. Prompted, perhaps, by some secret reasons, I delivered this observation with too much acrimony, which my Sophia gently reproved. Whatsoever his former conduct may be, papa, his circumstances should exempt him from censure now. His present indigence is a sufficient punishment for former folly. And I have heard my papa himself say that we should never strike our unnecessary blow at a victim over whom providence holds the scourge of its resentment. You're right, Sophie, cried my son Moses, and one of the ancients finally represents so malicious a conduct by the attempts of a rustic to flay Marcias, whose skin, the fable tells us, had been wholly stripped off by another. Besides, I don't know if this poor man's situation be so bad as my father would represent it. We are not to judge of the feelings of others by what we might feel if in their place. However dark the habitation of the mole to our eyes, yet the animal itself finds the apartment sufficiently lightsome. And, to confess the truth, this man's mind seems fitted to his station." for I never heard any one more sprightly than he was to-day, when he conversed with you. This was said without the least design, however it excited a blush, which she strove to cover by an affected laugh, assuring him that she scarce took any notice of what he said to her, but that she believed he might once have been a very fine gentleman. The readiness with which she undertook to vindicate herself and her blushing were symptoms I did not internally approve, but I repressed my suspicions. As we expected our landlord the next day, my wife went to make the venison pasty. Moses sat reading while I taught the little ones. My daughters seemed equally busy with the rest. And I observed them for a good while cooking something over the fire. I at first supposed they were assisting their mother, but little Dick informed me in a whisper that they were making a wash for the face. 
washes of all kinds i had a natural antipathy to for i knew that instead of mending the complexion they spoiled it i therefore approached my chair by sly degrees to the fire and grasping the poker as if it wanted mending seemingly by accident overturned the whole composition and it was too late to begin another End of chapter. The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith. Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 7. A Town Wit Described. The dullest fellows may learn to be comical for a night or two. When the morning arrived on which we were to entertain our young landlord, it may be easily supposed what provisions were exhausted to make an appearance. It may also be conjectured that my wife and daughters expanded their gayest plumage upon this occasion. Mr. Thornhill came with a couple of friends, his chaplain and feeder. The servants, who were numerous, he politely ordered to the next alehouse. But my wife, in the triumph of her heart, insisted on entertaining them all, for which, by the by, our family was pinched for three weeks after. As Mr. Burchell had hinted to us the day before, that he was making some proposals of marriage to Miss Wilmot, my son George's former mistress, this a good deal dampened the heartiness of his reception. But accident in some measure relieved our embarrassment, for one of the company happening to mention her name, Mr. Thornhill observed with an oath that he never knew anything more absurd than calling such a fright a beauty. For strike me ugly, continued he, if I should not find as much pleasure in choosing my mistress by the information of a lamp under the clock at St. Dunstan's. At this he laughed, and so did we. The jests of the rich are ever successful. Olivia, too, could not avoid whispering, loud enough to be heard, that he had an infinite fund of humour. After dinner I began with my usual toast, the church. For this I was thanked by the chaplain, as he said the church was the only mistress of his affections. "'Come, tell us honestly, Frank,' said the squire, with his usual archness. "'Suppose the church, your present mistress, dressed in lawn sleeves on one hand, and Miss Sophia, with no lawn about her on the other, which would you be for?' "'For both, to be sure,' cried the chaplain. "'Right, Frank,' cried the squire. "'For may this glass suffocate me, but a fine girl is worth all the priestcraft in the creation.' For what are tithes and tricks but an imposition, all a confounded imposture, and I can prove it. I wish you would, cried my son Moses, and I think, continued he, that I should be able to answer you. Very well, sir, cried the squire, who immediately smoked him, and, winking on the rest of the company to prepare us for the sport, if you are for a cool argument upon that subject, I am ready to accept the challenge. And, first, whether you are managing it analogically or dialogically. I am for managing it rationally, cried Moses, quite happy at being permitted to dispute. Good again, cried the squire. And, firstly of the first, I hope you'll not deny that whatever is, is. If you don't grant me that, I can go no further. Why, returned Moses, I think I may grant that, and make the best of it. I hope, too, returned the other, you'll grant that a part is less than the whole. I grant that, too, cried Moses. It is but just and reasonable. I hope, cried the squire, you will not deny that the two angles of a triangle are equal to two right ones. Nothing can be plainer, returned other, and looked round with his usual importance. Very well, cried the squire, speaking very quick. 
The premise being thus settled, I proceed to observe that the concatenation of self-existences proceeding in a reciprocal duplicate ratio naturally produce a problematical dialogism, which in some measure proves that the essence of spirituality may be referred to the second predicable. Hold, hold, cried the other. I deny that. Do you think I can thus tamely submit to such heterodox doctrines? What? replied the squire, as if in a passion. Not submit. Answer me one plain question. Do you think Aristotle right when he says that relatives are related? Undoubtedly, replied the other. If so, then, cried the squire, answer me directly to what I propose. Whether do you judge the analytical investigation of the first part of my enthymum deficient secundum coad, or coad minus, and give me your reasons, give me your reasons, I say directly. I protest, cried Moses, I don't rightly comprehend the force of your reasoning. But if it be reduced to one simple proposition, I fancy it may then have an answer. Oh, sir, cried the squire, I am your most humble servant. I find you want me to furnish you with argument and intellects too. No, sir, there I protest you are too hard for me. This effectually raised the laugh against poor Moses, who sat the only dismal figure in a group of merry faces. Nor did he offer a single syllable more during the whole entertainment. But, though all this gave me no pleasure, it had a very different effect upon Olivia, who mistook it for humour, though by a mere act of the memory. She thought him therefore a very fine gentleman, and, as such as consider what powerful ingredients a good figure, fine clothes, and fortune are in character, will easily forgive her. Mr. Thornhill, notwithstanding his real ignorance, talked with ease, and could expatiate on the common topics of conversation with fluency. It is not surprising, then, that such talents should win the affections of a girl who, by education, was taught to value an appearance in herself, and consequently to set a value upon it in another. Upon his departure we again entered into a debate upon the merits of our young landlord. As he directed his looks and conversation to Olivia, it was no longer doubted but that she was the object that induced him to be our visitor nor did she seem to be much displeased at the innocent raillery of her brother and sister upon this occasion. Even Deborah herself seemed to share the glory of the day, and exulted in her daughter's victory as if it were her own. "'And now, my dear,' cried she to me, "'I'll fairly own that it was I that instructed my girls to encourage our landlord's addresses. I had always some ambition, and you now see that I was right. For who knows how this may end?' I, who knows that indeed, answered I with a groan. For my part, I don't much like it, and I could have been better pleased with one that was poor and honest than this fine gentleman with his fortune and infidelity. For, dependent, if he be what I suspect him, no free thinker shall ever have a child of mine. Sure, father, cried Moses, you are too severe in this, for heaven will never arraign him for what he thinks, but for what he does. Every man has a thousand vicious thoughts which arise without his power to suppress. Thinking freely of religion may be involuntary with this gentleman, so that allowing his sentiments to be wrong, yet as he is purely passive in his assent, he is no more to be blamed for his errors than the governor of a city without walls for the shelter he is obliged to afford an invading enemy. True, my son, I cried, but if the governor invites the enemy, there he is justly culpable. And such is always the case with those who embrace error. The vice does not lie in assenting to the proofs they see, but in being blind to many of the proofs that offer. 
so that though our erroneous opinions be involuntary when formed yet as we have been wilfully corrupt or very negligent in forming them we deserve punishment for our vice or contempt for our folly my wife now kept up the conversation though not the argument she observed that several very prudent men of our acquaintance were freethinkers and made very good husbands and she knew some sensible girls that had skill enough to make converts of their spouses and who knows my dear continued she what olivia may be able to do the girl has a great deal to say upon every subject and to my knowledge is very well skilled in controversy why my dear what controversy can she have read cried i it does not occur to me that i ever put such books into her hands you certainly overrate her merit indeed papa replied olivia she does not i have read a great deal of controversy i have read the disputes between thwackham and square the controversy between robinson crusoe and friday the savage and i am now employed in reading the controversy in religious courtship very well cried i that's a good girl i find you are perfectly qualified for making converts and so go help your mother to make the gooseberry pie End of chapter. The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith. Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 8. An Amour which promises little good fortune, yet may be productive of much. The next morning we were again visited by Mr. Burchell. Though I began, for certain reasons, to be displeased with the frequency of his return, but I could not refuse him my company and fireside. It is true his labour more than requited his entertainment, for he wrought among us with vigour, and either in the meadow or at the hayrick put himself foremost. Besides, he had always something amusing to say that lessened our toil, and was at once so out of the way and yet so sensible that I loved, laughed at, and pitied him. My only dislike arose from an attachment he discovered to my daughter. He would, in a jesting manner, call her his little mistress, and when he bought each of the girls a set of ribbons, hers was the finest. I knew not how, but he every day seemed to become more amiable, his wit to improve, and his simplicity to assume the superior airs of wisdom. Our family dined in the field, and we sat, or rather reclined, round a temperate repast, our cloth spread upon the hay, while Mr. Burchill gave cheerfulness to the feast. To heighten our satisfaction, two blackbirds answered each other from opposite hedges. The familiar redbreast came and pecked the crumbs from our hands, and every sound seemed but the echo of tranquillity. I never sit thus, says Sophia, but I think of the two lovers, so sweetly described by Mr. Gay, who were struck dead in each other's arms. There is something so pathetic in the description that I have read it an hundred times with new rapture. In my opinion, cried my son, the finest strokes in that description are much below those in the Asis and Galatea of Ovid. The Roman poet understands the use of contrast better and upon that figure, artfully managed, all strength in the pathetic depends. It is remarkable, cried Mr. Burchill, that both the poets you mention have equally contributed to introduce a false taste into their respective countries, by loading all their lines with epithet. 
Men of little genius found them most easily imitated in their defects, and English poetry, like that in the latter empire of Rome, is nothing at present but a combination of luxuriant images without plot or connection, a string of epithets that improve the sound without carrying on the sense. But perhaps, madam, while I thus reprehend others, you'll think it just that I should give them an opportunity to retaliate. And, indeed, I have made this remark only to have an opportunity of introducing to the company a ballad which, whatever be its other defects, is, I think, at least, free from those I have mentioned. A Ballad Turn, gentle hermit of the dale, and guide my lonely way to where yon taper cheers the vale with hospitable ray. For here, forlorn and lost, I tread with fainting steps and slow, where wilds immeasurably spread, seem lengthening as I go. Forbear, my son, the hermit cries, to tempt the dangerous gloom, for yonder faithless phantom flies to lure thee to thy doom. Here to the houseless child of want my door is open still, and though my portion is but scant, I give it with good will. Then turn to-night and freely share whate'er my cell bestows, my rushy couch and frugal fare, my blessing and repose. No flocks that range the valley free to slaughter I condemn, taught by that power that pities me, I learn to pity them. But from the mountain's grassy side a guiltless feast I bring, a scrip with herbs and fruits supplied, and water from the spring. Then, pilgrim, turn thy cares for go, all earth-born cares are wrong, man wants but little here below, nor wants that little long. Soft as the dew from heaven descends, his gentle accents fell, the modest stranger lowly bends and follows to the cell. Far in a wilderness obscure the lonely mansion lay, a refuge to the neighbouring poor and strangers led astray. No stores beneath its humble thatch required a master's care, the wicket opening with a latch received the harmless pair. And now when busy crowds retired to take their evening rest, the hermit trimmed his little fire and cheered his pensive guest, and spread his vegetable store and gaily pressed and smiled, and skilled in legendary lore the lingering hours beguiled. Around in sympathetic mirth its tricks the kitten tries, the cricket chirrups in the hearth, the crackling faggot flies. But nothing could a charm impart to soothe the stranger's woe, for grief was heavy as his heart, and tears began to flow. His rising cares the hermit spied, with answering care oppressed, and whence, unhappy youth, he cried, the sorrows of thy breast. From better habitations spurn, reluctant dost thou rove, or grieve for friendships unreturned, or unregarded love. Alas, the joys that fortune brings are trifling and decay, and those who prize the paltry things more trifling still than they. And what is friendship but a name, a charm that lulls to sleep, a shade that follows wealth or fame, but leaves the wretch to weep? And love is still an emptier sound, the modern fair one's jest, on earth unseen, or only found to warm the turtle's nest. For shame, fond youth, thy sorrows hush, and spurn the sex, he said, but while he spoke a rising blush his lovelorn guest betrayed. Surprised, he sees new beauties rise, swift mantling to the view, like colours o'er the morning skies, as bright, as transient too. 
the bashful look, the rising breast, alternate spread alarms. The lovely stranger stands confessed, a maid in all her charms. And, ah, forgive a stranger rude, a wretch forlorn, she cried, whose feet unhallowed thus intrude where heaven and you reside. But let a maid thy pity share, whom love has taught to stray, who seeks for rest, but finds despair, companion of her way. My father lived beside the Tyne, a wealthy lord was he, and all his wealth was marked as mine, he had but only me. To win me from his tender arms unnumbered suitors came, who praised me for imputed charms, and felt or feigned a flame. Each hour a mercenary crowd with richest proffers strove, among the rest young Edwin bowed, but never talked of love. In humble simplest habit clad no wealth nor power had he, Wisdom and worth were all he had, but these were all to me. The blossom opening to the day, the dews of heaven refined, Could naught of purity display to emulate his mind. The dew, the blossom on the tree, with charms inconstant shine. Their charms were his, but woe to me, their constancy was mine. For still I tried each fickle art, importunate and vain, And while his passion touched my heart, I triumphed in his pain. Till, quite dejected with my scorn, he left me to my pride, And sought a solitude forlorn in secret where he died. But mine the sorrow, mine the fault, and well my life shall pay, I'll seek the solitude he sought, and stretch me where he lay. And there, forlorn, despairing, hid, I'll lay me down and die. T'was so for me that Edwin did, and so for him will I. Forbid it, heaven, the hermit cried, and clasped her to his breast. The wondering fair one turned to chide, t'was Edwin's self that pressed. Turn, Angelina, ever dear, my charmer, turn to see. Thy own, thy long-lost Edwin, here, restored to love and thee. Thus let me hold thee to my heart, and every care resign. And shall we never, never part my life, my all that's mine? No, never from this hour to part will live and love so true. The sigh that tends thy constant heart shall break thy Edwin's too. While this ballad was reading, Sophia seemed to mix an air of tenderness with her approbation. But our tranquillity was soon disturbed by the report of a gun just by us, and immediately after a man was seen bursting through the hedge to take up the game he had killed. This sportsman was the squire's chaplain, who had shot one of the blackbirds that so agreeably entertained us. So loud a report, and so near, startled my daughters. And I could perceive that Sophia, in the fright, had thrown herself into Mr. Burchill's arms for protection. The gentleman came up and asked pardon for having disturbed us, affirming that he was ignorant of our being so near. He therefore sat down by my youngest daughter, and, sportsmanlike, offered her what he had killed that morning. She was going to refuse, but a private look from her mother soon induced her to correct the mistake, and accept his present, though with some reluctance. My wife, as usual, discovered her pride in a whisper, observing that Sophie had made a conquest of the chaplain, as well as her sister had of the squire. I suspected, however, with more probability, that her affections were placed upon a different object. The chaplain's errand was to inform us that Mr. Thornhill had provided music and refreshments, 
and intended that night giving the young ladies a ball by moonlight on the grass-plot before our door. Nor can I deny, continued he, but I have an interest in being first to deliver this message, as I expect for my reward to be honoured with Miss Sophie's hand as a partner. To this my girl replied that she should have no objection if she could do it with honour. But here, continued she, is a gentleman, looking at Mr. Burchill, who has been my companion in the task of the day, and it is fit he should share in its amusements. Mr. Burchill returned her a compliment for her intentions, but resigned her up to the chaplain, adding that he was to go that night five miles, being invited to an harvest supper. His refusal appeared to me a little extraordinary, nor could I conceive how so sensible a girl as my youngest could thus prefer a man of broken fortunes to one whose expectations were much greater. But as men are most capable of distinguishing merit in women, so the ladies often form the truest judgments of us. The two sexes seemed placed as spies upon each other, and are furnished with different abilities adapted for mutual inspection. End of chapter The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 9 Two ladies of great distinction introduced. Superior finery ever seems to confer superior breeding. Mr. Burchell had scarce taken leave, and Sophia consented to dance with the chaplain, when my little ones came running out to tell us that the squire was come with a crowd of company. Upon our return we found our landlord with a couple of under-gentlemen and two young ladies richly dressed, whom he introduced as women of very great distinction and fashion from town. We happened not to have chairs enough for the whole company, but Mr. Thornhill immediately proposed that every gentleman should sit in a lady's lap. This I positively objected to, notwithstanding a look of disapprobation from my wife. Moses was therefore dispatched to borrow a couple of chairs, and as we were in want of ladies to make up a set at country dances, the two gentlemen went with him in quest of a couple of partners. Chairs and partners were soon provided. The gentlemen returned with my neighbour Flamborough's rosy daughters, flaunting with red topknots. But an unlucky circumstance was not adverted to. Though the Miss Flamboroughs were reckoned the very best dancers in the parish, and understood the jig and the roundabout to perfection, yet they were totally unacquainted with country dances. This at first discomposed us. However, after a little shoving and dragging, they at last went merrily on. Our music consisted of two fiddles with a pipe and table. The moon shone bright. Mr. Thornhill and my eldest daughter led up the ball, to the great delight of the spectators. For the neighbours, hearing what was going forward, came flocking about us. My girl moved with so much grace and vivacity that my wife could not avoid discovering the pride of her heart, by assuring me that, though the little chit did it so cleverly, all the steps were stolen from herself. The ladies of the town strove hard to be equally easy, but without success. They swam, sprawled, languished, and frisked, but all would not do. The gazers, indeed, owned that it was fine, but neighbour Flamborough observed that Miss Livy's feet seemed as pat to the music as its echo. After the dance had continued about an hour, the two ladies, who were apprehensive of catching cold, moved to break up the ball. 
One of them, I thought, expressed her sentiments upon this occasion in a very coarse manner, when she observed that, by the living jingo, she was all of a muck of sweat. Upon our return to the house we found a very elegant cold supper, which Mr. Thornhill had ordered to be brought with him. The conversation at this time was more reserved than before. The two ladies threw my girls quite into the shade, for they would talk of nothing but high life and high-lived company, with other fashionable topics such as pictures, taste, Shakespeare, and the musical glasses. Tis true they once or twice mortified us sensibly by slipping out an oath, but that appeared to me as the surest symptom of their distinction, though I am since informed that swearing is perfectly unfashionable. Their finery, however, threw a veil over any grossness in their conversation. My daughters seemed to regard their superior accomplishments with envy, and what appeared amiss was ascribed to tip-top quality breeding. But the condescension of the ladies was still superior to their other accomplishments. One of them observed that had Miss Olivia seen a little more of the world, it would greatly improve her to which the other added that a single winter in town would make her little Sophia quite another thing. My wife warmly assented to both, adding that there was nothing she more ardently wished than to give her girls a single winter's polishing. To this I could not help replying that their breeding was already superior to their fortune, and that greater refinement would only serve to make their poverty ridiculous, and give them a taste for pleasures they had no right to possess. "'And what pleasures,' cried Mr. Thornhill, "'do they not deserve to possess, "'who have so much in their power to bestow? "'As for my part,' continued he, "'my fortune is pretty large. "'Love, liberty, and pleasure are my maxims. "'But curse me, if a settlement of half my estate "'could give my charming Olivia pleasure, it should be hers. "'And the only favour I would ask in return "'would be to add myself to the benefit.' I was not such a stranger to the world as to be ignorant that this was the fashionable cant to disguise the insolence of the basest proposal. But I made an effort to suppress my resentment. Sir, cried I, the family which you now condescend to favour with your company has been bred with as nice a sense of honour as you. Any attempts to injure that may be attended with very dangerous consequences. Honour, sir, is our only possession at present and of that last treasure we must be particularly careful. I was soon sorry for the warmth with which I had spoken this, when the young gentleman, grasping my hand, swore he commended my spirit, though he disapproved my suspicions. As to your present hint, continued he, I protest nothing was further from my heart than such a thought. No, by all that's tempting, the virtue that will stand a regular siege was never to my taste, for all my amours are carried by a coup de main. The two ladies, who affected to be ignorant of the rest, seemed highly displeasured with this last stroke of freedom, and began a very discreet and serious dialogue upon virtue. In this my wife, the chaplain, and I soon joined, and the squire himself was at last brought to confess a sense of sorrow for his former excesses. We talked of the pleasures of temperance, and of the sunshine in the mind unpolluted with guilt. I was so well pleased that my little ones were kept up beyond the usual time to be edified by so much good conversation. Mr. Thornhill even went beyond me, and demanded if I had any objections to giving prayers. I joyfully embraced the proposal, and in this manner the night was passed in a most comfortable way, 
till at last the company began to think of returning. The ladies seemed very unwilling to part with my daughters, for whom they had conceived a particular affection, and joined in a request to have the pleasure of their company home. The choir seconded the proposal, and my wife added her entreaties. The girls, too, looked upon me as if they wished to go. In this perplexity I made two or three excuses, which my daughters as readily removed, so that at last I was obliged to give a peremptory refusal, for which we had nothing but sullen looks and short answers the whole day ensuing. End of chapter. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.